This is the Employment Law Show. And welcome to it. Good evening. It is uh, a Monday. How about that? We're into another week. And uh, you want to reach out? Uh, we're here, John Scholes, along with Andrew Goldberg. Easiest way, 416-870. Oh, hang on. 416-870-6400. There we go. I'm back. Hello there. And uh, good to have you along. Andrew Goldberg, Senior Associate, San Firu to Market, LLP, the most positively reviewed employment law firm in the land. We have a lot of ground to cover tonight. We're going to get to this topic, which is you're not really an independent contractor. This is an extremely gray area to most people, but we're going to clear some of that up for sure tonight. And a couple things to get the, to get through first, Andrew, love uh, love having you back in the show. Uh, where do you want to take it for the week that was? I know you got two things you want to discuss. For sure. I'm uh, thrilled to be back. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm coming, uh, recovering a bit from a bit of a throat thing, so I'll do my best here today. Um, but essentially, there are two topics I wanted to bring up to kick off the show. One has to do with, a, you know, huge news on the um, kind of gig worker front, which involves news from the provincial government in Ontario regarding the fact that legislation is introduced and if passed, will guarantee a minimum wage for gig workers, including those you know, mm-hmm. who work for Uber or Uber Eats and, and the delivery services that we rely on, and uh, which is huge news because we've been kind of pushing for protection for these types of people forever. And it's great to hear that the Ontario government is uh, taking that seriously and making big strides to help uh, that process along. What else you got? To, what else you got going on, man? Well, another, you know, there's a lot, <laughs> there's no shortage of things going on these days, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but in terms of uh, kind of issues related to employment and uh, for those listeners we have out there, uh, another big uh, news item involves the Hudson's Bay Company, HBC, and the fact that their kind of flagship location at Young and Bloor uh, is now shutting down, yeah. and uh, which is huge news and, you know, some degree sad for Canadians, the Bay has been around forever. It's one of the oldest companies. I believe it's actually the oldest company, but at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, this is the way things go. Uh, but one, one point I do definitely want to mention is, and this comes up all the time, is when a store closes down, and again, it's just that location that's closing down. Right. And even if it wasn't and they had multiple locations, this kind of what I'm about to tell the listeners would still apply. But just because the store or location you're working at closes down in no way shape or form does that disentitle you to a severance payment you're still certainly entitled to severance so don't think just because you know your workplace is closing that that negates your ability to pursue severance everyone has rights and and this doesn't change that fact yeah it's interesting i I think the uh the big thing you mentioned there was it's this location for now it's this location for now. We've all heard for a long time that the Hudson's Bay and the Bay stores aren't doing that great, but that maybe this is evidence of that. But there there should be no problem at that point for people seeking, I won't just say severance, I'm going to say proper severance because chances are they're going to get shortchanged by whatever they're offered when the, uh, when the hammer drops for sure, which is why they should seek out uh, your help anyway in uh, getting that proper offer. But this is different than like the Sears or Future Shop situation where they went out of business and, and uh- discontinued business. That's different, right? Oh, the, yeah, it's different in the sense that this is just a location that's closing down. And and like you said, the, you know, the, the world is an ever-changing place. People are purchasing more online than in large department store settings. So it could be just that they're revamping their strategy in terms of, you know, reaching end consumers. It's, it's not necessarily indicative of, you know, the performance of the company at this stage. 
Um, and yes, it is different than Sears and those other the other example you gave because it, it's not as if the Bay is going bankrupt or closing all their doors or discontinuing their services entirely. Uh, in this case, it's just one location. So the company itself is still an operational company. It has other locations. And just because your location is closing down, uh, you should not worry about that when it comes to your receipt of severance or your entitlements to severance. And interestingly enough, with the Bay, uh, we were dealing with this, uh, you know, what God, which is now over a year ago. But when COVID first hit, they were implementing a process whereby they were reducing everyone, not everyone, but a significant number of employees pay and then terminating their employment and trying to base their severance off of that reduced pay. So which was uh, right. you know, sli slightly backhanded thing to do at the time. And so certainly if you work at the Bay, I mean, keep in mind if you're listening to this and work at the Bay and, and you're out of a job, you know, certainly give us a call so we can review your severance. And for anyone else out there who is employed and is dealing with a company which is closing the doors of a certain location. Again, you have entitlements and, and we're here to help if, if that's happening to you. And that, uh, that goes for temporary layoffs as well to reach uh, Andrew anytime and his team always ready to uh, have a chat with you, right? one 821 5900 help at employmentlawyer.ca. And there's always more information Even before that phone call. You can go to the, uh, this website absolutely free. It's anonymous put together just for you. And that would be, PocketEmploymentLawyer.ca wrapped up into that sucker would be the severance pay calculator, which is what this whole thing boils down to. If you're an employee, soon to be ex-employee of a company like the Bay, it all matters how much severance you get. And the proper number can be found, not from them, not from your neighbor Steve or from the ministry website. It can be found at PocketEmploymentLawyer.ca. From that point, you want to uh, solidify that point, that number that you see. Then you give Andrew a call at the uh, aforementioned number. And, uh, and carry on from there. But here and now, still plenty of time to uh, to call through. The night is young and the uh, lines are open, 416-870-6400. Any employment matters, bring them on. We'd love to, uh, love to talk to you. You're not really an independent contractor. Now, this has been a... Um, a source of confusion for people listening to the show for the, uh, I guess, nearly the decade we've been doing it, Andrew, and it continues to be. Um, there's there's so many things about being an independent contractor, which you may not be or you may be, and there's pitfalls to this, and there could be problems, tax and otherwise, if you get it wrong. So I want to get into this. So uh, point number one, when it comes to independent contractors, what's the difference between an independent contractor and an employee, straight up? Well, before getting into your point, I just want to quickly bring up the fact mm -hmm. that you know this topic is a great topic mainly because of this this new legislation for gig workers um, that we just spoke about right for in you know uber drivers and you know skip the dishes and whatever other companies are out yeah. there uh there's you know there's thousands and thousands of people working for these companies and and so therefore this legislation has a lot of impact on them but it's not as if that it was the case that prior to you know, Ford's soon to be introduction of this legislation that these people didn't have rights, right? And this really, the starting point to kind of dive into this is, is like you said, is to discuss what the difference is between an independent contractor and an employee. So yeah. the difference is when you're an independent contractor, you're, you're, you're almost like a service provider, right? You think about it as having multiple clients and, you know, for example, say you mow lawns for a living. And you have, you go door to door and get customer after customer. And before you know it, you have different streets that you're working for different people. And each of those customers pays you directly. And um, 
then all of a sudden, say, you start to get a couple of contracts for some industrial settings or some commercial settings so that you really have, you know, four or five different kind of big industrial grounds that you're doing the lawn mowing for, let's just say. In that case, you're an independent contractor because each of those companies contracts you to mow their lawns. It's not that complicated. An employee, you're an individual that works directly for an employer. You take your direction from that employer. You get paid directly from that employer. You're not going to lose money or gain money based on the performance of that employer. You're, you're, you know, like most people that, that work a nine to five job. Um, the most important criteria being, are you economically dependent on the company that you're working for? So with the case with independent contractors, if you have multiple customers and you're doing the work for different people, it's hard to say that any one of those companies or individuals are your employer because you're spreading out you know, your, the money that you're receiving. It's not tied to kind of one individual entity. When you're an employee, you're working nine to five, you get a salary, you get paid. Sometimes you get commissions and bonuses and benefits and other things. But, you know, all the kind of criteria that we would look at would point to you being an employee in that setting and as opposed to a contractor. Um, and the most important thing to keep in mind is what you're labeled as has no bearing on what you actually are. So if you are an employee in the sense that your relationship with the company that you work for indicates that you would be an employee for the reasons we just discussed, just because that company might say on paper, hey, we're going to call you an independent contractor, so sign this, um, that really has no bearing uh, on if you sign a contract that, it, that lists you as an independent contractor, that's not going to really change the analysis at all. Yeah, substance over form is what they say. Substance over form. It's interesting too because it, it's basically the plumber. You go to one person's house, you you do the job, you get paid, move on to the next client, so on and so forth. You are an independent contractor. You're not an employee, right? Does it uh, does it really matter if you're an employee or an independent contractor? I mean, are you better off being an employee? Well, there's there's pros and cons of each, but only employees really gain most of the protections that are afforded by. You know both the legislation we have in the province which is the employment standards act and uh, different other uh, kind of statutes that exist um, whereas an independent contractor doesn't have the same protection so like for instance an employee would be entitled to minimum wage would be entitled to severance would be entitled to vacation pay um, you know medical leaves of absence all the things that you'd expect um, when we talk about kind of one's minimum entitlements. An independent contractor doesn't have those benefits. And, and that's why we're seeing, you know, the, the Ontario government propose this new legislation for gig workers, because while technically as an Uber driver, you know, you, you're, you're not um, an employee on paper, you're deemed a contractor on paper. There's many Uber drivers out there that are working 40, 50 plus hours a week for Uber, and that's all they're doing. And it's hard to say that Uber is not their employer at that point when they're taking direction from Uber and that all their money, or for the most part, all their money is coming from Uber. So what the Ford government's trying to do here is kind of balance the playing field again and say, hey, we want to recognize those types of gig employees as individuals who should receive protection as being an employee. So they don't want there to be kind of this ambiguity anymore, and, and they want to guarantee the protections, which is great for for many of those listeners out there that are gig workers and drive for Uber and things like that. I want to continue this conversation. We've got to take a quick break. We'll get back into it and uh, hopefully some emails later on and your phone calls. Bring it on. 416-870-6400. You have any questions for Andrew? 
He is armed and ready to go at it and answer your questions for sure. We'll continue Employment Law Show here on a Monday night. Welcome back to the Employment Law Show. And welcome back. It is 723 on a Monday night. Yeah, you bet. Working 95. Yeah, you could still be an independent contractor. Maybe. I don't know. We're going to try to uh, sift through the tea leaves, see if that's possible. Uh, Andrew Goldberg is your guy. Sam Firu Tamarkin LLP is where he is, an associate, uh, senior associate lawyer. You want to reach out to Andrew anytime, by the way, when we're not doing the show. Uh, 1-855-821-5900. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. But here and now, you got plenty of time to uh, give us a call on air, ask some questions, get some answers and uh, move on from there. 416-870-6400. Let's uh, keep uh, going our chat here. A couple more points to get through. Andrew talking about independent contractors. Can you still remain an independent contractor if you don't meet the the criteria to be one? And I mean, what if both the employee and employer agree? Yeah. You know what? We'll call you an independent contractor. Okay, Jim, that's good. Thank you. Appreciate that. And you carry on uh, with that sort of agreement. What do you think about that? Well, you know, what we talked about before the break was the fact that really what this comes down to is the substance of the relationship and how the relationship truly exists, regardless of how the parties intend on labeling it, right? So at the end of the day, if you're a, let's just say you're an accountant and you work for, um, you know, ABC Corporation and you work full time and you take your direction from the controller of the company and you work in the office and you use their laptop and internet and everything. But one day your boss comes to you and says, Hey, we just want to start calling you a contractor now. And you say, okay, fine. That's fine. I'll, I'll do it. it. It doesn't matter that that happened, that that existed at the end of the day, as long as you're kind of economically dependent on the company you work for to a great extent, if you are using their equipment you're taking direction from them, if you get paid consistently for the work that you're doing, like the law was going to consider you to be an employee. And regardless of how both the employer and employee agree to characterize a relationship as otherwise, maybe as an independent contractor relationship, if at the end of the day, you know, you're experiencing mistreatment or you're fired from your job and your employer takes the position, hey, we're not going to give you severance because you agreed you're a contractor on paper. That's not going to stop us from trying to help you pursue your severance, arguing that regardless of the kind of classification, you're the substance of the relationship is that you are an employee. So uh, it's a great question because there's individuals and companies trying to do this all the time, a lot, oftentimes for tax saving purposes to get people off payroll and to avoid legal obligation. So this is not going to kind of get employers out of it if you're experiencing some wrongdoing. Well, let's let's talk about the taxing for a moment because you know a lot of people think, well, that's the isn't that the uh, that's the linchpin of the whole thing. We've agreed that I just I remit my own taxes to CRA, and they're not they're not deducting taxes. Therefore, I'm a contractor. That's what people think, right? Right, exactly. That's what people think, and uh, rightfully so because for the purposes of your taxes, the CRA may very well consider you to be a contractor. If your employer is not, you know, in the normal course, when someone's an employee and you're on payroll you make $1,000 a week gross and, and you know, your employer says, hey, we're paying you 52000 a year, um, do you accept this job? And you say, sure. 
and now you're getting paid a thousand a week, you're not going to get a thousand a week in your pocket. Your employer is going to remit taxes to the government. They're going to take off pay for CPP, for EI, mm-hmm. things like right. that. So maybe you get 700 in your pocket every week. Who knows that, you know, I don't have the exact math, but um, if, you know, in the, you know, on the opposite side of things, your employer characterizes you as an independent contractor and on paper, and then they say, hey, we're not going to take any tax off your pay. We're not going to remit to CPP. We're not going to remit to EI. Um, your taxes are your responsibility. And sometimes these workers that are classified as independent contractors, they you know might charge HST on their on their payments, right? So when they do work and they invoice the company for the work that they've done, they very well might charge HST. Um, but the existence of all of those things, and even though CRA might be processing your income and your payment accordingly, that does not mean that for the purpose of analyzing kind of your legal entitlements from an employment law perspective strictly, that you don't have entitlements. There's different thresholds that the CRA uses when determining whether you're a contractor or not, and what the law says about, you know, that same analysis with respect to your kind of employment entitlements to things like severance and overtime pay and minimum wage and things of that nature. So it does not necessarily matter. It could be, it's one sign that, you know, the employer's not deducting taxes, but it does not at all necessarily matter that that's happening um, in the sense that you're not precluded from pursuing entitlements as an employee. Again, still some time, 416-870-6400 if you have any questions of uh, that nature or anything else having to do with your job, call us now on air and uh, get them answered. Does being incorporated, people often do that, they pay a couple hundred bucks and get this done, does being incorporated give you independent contractor status or does it change the equation at all? It it might change, again, like things like being incorporated, you know, charging an invoice to your employer with HST as opposed to being on payroll, these things are kind of superficial indications that someone yeah. might be um, a contractor versus an employee. But at the end of the day, it doesn't change the fact that what matters is the substance. So, you know, really, that's just more of a shell than anything. It, it doesn't if you incorporate, you, like, let's put it to you this way. You could be doing the job you're doing as an employee, and there's no dispute you're an employee, you work 40 hours a week, eight hours a day, set hours, set pay, everything like that. And then, you know, the next week you incorporate and you do the same work you did before, but now you do so through your corporation and your corporation's paid instead of you. Other than the fact that your corporation's now getting paid instead of you directly, there's no difference between the relationship between you as the worker and the company as the employer. Um, and that's really what's what's most important here are those more kind of substantive issues as opposed to those kind of superficial what's on paper and how are we going to try to shield um, this relationship. So it almost looks like it's an independent contract relationship at, you know, very brief glance. But once you kind of dig further and look at um, the real kind of substance of it all, if it shows entirely different, then this isn't going to change the analysis at all. Uh, as well. I guess, you know, the, the moral of the story is if it was that simple that you could just call everybody an independent contractor, every company in this country wouldn't bother having employees, quote unquote, because you wouldn't have to rip it into taxes, you know, pay overtime, possible benefits, EI, so on and so forth. We'll just call everybody in the country independent contractors. Obviously, it doesn't work that way. Exactly. It's the same, you know, we, one example we talk about all the time too is when there's a series of fixed term contracts, right? So 
we talk on the show very frequently, you know, I've worked for my company for eight years, but every year I've signed a one year contract. Now that I'm being fired at the end of my eighth year, they're saying, you know, I'm only on this one year contract, but, but obviously no, you're going to get credited for your eight years. Employers can't just create this artificial series of contracts to try to get out of your entitlements as an eight year employee being, you know, your severance would be based on you being an eight year employee and, and your vacation pay and things of that nature. So it's, it's kind of just the same thing. If, if it was that easy to do, all employers would give employees a series of fixed term contracts. And in, in this instance with, you know, being labeled an independent contractor, all um, employers would do the same thing. They, like you said, there's so many financial benefits and, and, and uh, to doing so. And on paper, yeah. it, it would minimize your kind of legal risk, but really what listeners have to keep in mind is, you know, these issues involving around being an independent contractor and employee, if you're misclassified as an independent contractor, when you're not, you know, you have to act on it. You have to see a lawyer and, and get advice and see, Hey, like I've been fired. I'm an independent contractor or, Hey, you know, I'm working 70 hours a week. I'm being called an independent contractor. Are these things okay to happen without overtime pay or proper severance? And you have to then act on it. But until the individual acts on it, if everything remains status quo, then, you know, there's not going to be some external force that's going to help you out here. You as the listener of this program and someone who might be in the situation have to take the initiative to kind of pursue your entitlements if that's the case. Reaching out to Andrew anytime and his team at the firm, by the way, one 821 5900 help at employmentlawyer.ca. But here and now, still got some time to call us on air. Got phone lines are open and it's quiet, so you'll get through 416-870-6400. We often talk about, as just before we move on to a couple of emails, we often talked about that middle ground being a dependent contractor, wherein, you know, you may be a, an independent contractor, you might have five, six, seven clients, but you have one client who's responsible for 60, 70% of your income. You have other clients where you're making money from, but they, they provide the bulk of your income. So we classify that as a dependent contractor. Does the equation change in that regard as well? I, I imagine it would be for severance, correct? So it's a great question. And, and really when we say dependent contractor, yep. it's a situation where there's, like you said, there's more than just what you're labeling the relationship as and, whether you have a corporation and charging HST, there's more than just that to point that you're a contractor. So in the case you just mentioned, you might have four clients, let's just say, whereas most employees, you know, really only have one employer. Sometimes they have a second part-time job or something like that, but really no more than that. When it comes to scenario where you might have kind of, let's say four clients as a contractor, but one of them, you know, kind of comprises the bulk of your business then while you might not be an employee per se on paper, you would be, you know, deemed by a court and by our legal system as a dependent contractor as opposed to independent. And in that situation, just like an employee would, if you were fired by the company that you were kind of economically dependent on amongst your four clients, then you would be entitled to severance as a dependent contractor, a dependent contractor, just as you would as an employee. So there are still rights that you have in that situation. And it almost kind of creates like a middle ground where, you know, it splits between independent and employee, but your entitlements as a dependent contractor are oftentimes identical to what they would be as an employee. So it's definitely beneficial for the workers out there. And and again, it's, it's another thing to keep in mind where, 
even if you're sitting at home and you're like, well, there's a bunch of things about what I do that kind of points to me being a contractor. I don't think there's any point of pursuing, you know, uh, my entitlements or speaking to a lawyer. There's a lot of kind of slack that you get in our legal system that to pursue entitlements, even in those situations where some of the criteria about, you know, the relationship of your job might point to a contractor relationship. So it's still worth calling a lawyer. It's it's worth calling Andrew, and it's also worth going to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca as well. The website it's free, anonymous, and there's a whole section there on independent contractors and all the uh, boundaries within that. So you can uh, you can do that anytime you would like. I want to get to an email before we move on, Andrew? This one's from Janet. It says, "Hey Andrew, uh, love the show. I'm still on a temporary layoff, waiting to be called back to work. My employer said that they're still waiting for the right time, but I know that some of my coworkers have already been brought back. What are my rights here?" Well, you know, there are still many people like Janet who are on temporary layoffs, uh, you know, that they've been very frequent during the course of the pandemic um, since March 2020. Now, your recourse depends on a couple of things. It depends on whether you've been laid off before, and it depends on whether you've ever agreed to be placed on a temporary layoff. Now, the vast majority of people that were laid off during the pandemic in the last two years, as I assume... Uh, Janet was, um, they've never agreed to be placed on a temporary layoff as part of a contract, mm-hmm. and they've never been laid off before. So as a result, you, Janet, our listener, and, and other people that are on a temporary layoff right now can most likely treat their employment as being terminated. They can refuse the layoff and say, I'm treating this as if I'm terminated because it's not something I ever agreed to. And uh, you know, these are very common cases uh, in the course of the last two years. And so Janet's certainly not alone. And it's definitely very frustrating when not only are you on a layoff, but you're watching your colleagues return to work all around you. Um, and, and then one last thing to keep in mind is, you know, even if you have been laid off maybe once before, it doesn't mean that you can't pursue your entitlements. It, mm-hmm. It's not helpful to your situation. But if you were laid off for a week, 10 years ago, and now you've been laid off a year, you can definitely make the argument those those are entirely fundamentally different things. So um, anyone who's in the situation that Janet's in, if you don't feel like waiting till you're called back to work, then certainly you could pursue, uh, you know, what's called a constructive dismissal claim with a with our firm, whereby you're pretty much arguing that you've never agreed to the layoff and you're treating it as a termination. And by doing so, you can pursue your severance. Janet, thank you so much for the email. To make that phone call, reach out to Andrew. He is a partner, Sanfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed employment law firm in our country. one 821 5,900 is, uh, is how you do that. You gave me a list here, uh, Andrew, some, some pretty cool things, most common questions, common uh, employment law questions you get. want to uh, machete our way through a few of these because I'm sure a lot of people listening have these same, uh, same questions as well. First one is, hey, man, I didn't do anything wrong. Can my employer terminate my employment? Yes, that that might be the most common question we get. And it it's interesting because there are very, very few situations where you can prevent an employer from terminating your employment. And that includes situations where you did nothing wrong at all. Um, what happens in a situation where you didn't do anything wrong is that you can pursue your severance. That is why in this province, and for the most part in this country, you are entitled to severance. It's because we're telling employers that, look, we're balancing two 
kind of considerations. Consideration one is you as an employer, you know, it's if you're an owner of a company, yes, it's your company. You should have freedoms as an owner of a company. We're not trying to deny that to the full degree. But at the same time, we want to protect the rights of employees who are vulnerable. And, you know, we want to protect them in situations where if they didn't do anything wrong and you as the employer want to let them go, that they get something in return to help them and ease the pain till they find a new job. And really, that is the purpose of severance. And that's why it exists at all. So if you didn't do anything wrong and you're, you know, you're gung ho to get your job back and it, you ask me, is that something I can do for you? The answer I'm going to give you is almost 100% of the time, no, I cannot get you your job back. What I can mm. do is ensure that you get you know, every dollar that you should get for severance to compensate you for the fact that you did nothing wrong and that caused you to lose your job. You mentioned every dollar, and that's always a follow-up question you get, right? Okay, Andrew, how much severance should I get? Because I have a feeling, based on what you guys talk about on the show for the last 10 years, the number <laughs> on my severance offer is weak. Right. And I mean, that's why we kind of introduced the severance pay calculator, because, you know, we want listeners out there and we want people as a whole to, to have the ability to go, you know, online and very quickly just make an assessment as to, you know, this is my offer on termination. Is this anywhere close to what I should be getting? And, and, and we just want to educate people on that front and, um, you know, what that calculator is doing and what we do as employment lawyers is assess the amount of severance you should get. And that's going to be based on a variety of factors, such as your age, the older you are, the greater your severance is going to be all things equal. The length of employment, the longer you're employed, the greater your severance is going to be all things being equal. Um, your position, and, and that area of law has kind of changed a bit, but historically, kind of the more senior your position if you're in a managerial role or the you know you you're very heavily compensated because you do a very specialized position where a few other comparable opportunities exist you're likely right. going to get a better severance than someone who has a job that kind of more commonly exists out there and there's more opportunities for that person and um and really that's what we're looking at here when making that assessment. So it's going to be an individual individualized uh, consideration and everyone's severance is entitlement is going to be different based on those factors. So um, that's what we're here to do to kind of, you know, analyze those things and, and kind of make a determination as where we should try to get our clients. Yeah. We often talk about as well on that severance offer, of course, being, you know, short change, the amount's not going to be nearly enough. There's always that deadline, you know, Friday at five or by next Monday, so on and so forth. You have to have this signed back to us being the employer, always a pressure tactic, always causes stress for people. Um, does it have to be, uh, does it have to be honored or can they just blow it off? No, it, it by no means has to be honored. It's legitimately just the most arbitrary date. Like there's no, legal basis for that date. It's just an employer strictly trying to put pressure on you to sign an agreement, right? So um, at the end of the day, it's so seldom that an employer is going to ever pull an offer on the, off the table. And more often than not, in any event, the more kind of pushy an employer is to get you to sign off on a severance offer, that's when kind of your radar needs to start going off and say, well, if what they're offering me is fair, what's the rush? Like, why can't I take a few? Like, I've just been fired from my job. It's stressful. Most of the time people aren't expecting it. Why do I have this, have this back 
by tomorrow? Why do I have to sign this right now? Why do I only have two days? Employers that are making good faith and fair severance offers, they almost always provide at least a week for um, their employees to review the offer and consider it and decide what they want to do. And you, it's interestingly enough, sometimes you even see employers offer to pay um, you know, a few hundred bucks towards that employee's legal fees so that they and they insist that, hey, go get a consultation with the lawyer, review it, let us know what you think, right? If your employer told you that, here's your offer, we'll also give you a few hundred bucks, go ahead, go see an, an employment lawyer and get back to us. To me, that would give you a lot more comfort that their offer was yeah. fair than, hey, sign this right now before you leave this room or else we're never giving you this money again. Like, don't ever find yourself in that situation. Um, if you are in that situation, you definitely have to consider that a huge red flag. And if you sign the severance offer and you sign the release, there's usually going to be very little we can do. If you feel mm -hmm. coerced, there's sometimes in very unique situations where we might be able to get around it, but it's not a place you want to go. You can avoid going down that road where you're trying to unwind your signing off on a severance offer with a release document not ideal at all and much prefer that you just you know hold your ground say hey i need at least a few days go speak to an employment lawyer because that date means absolutely nothing we'll get to sheila sheila we got about literally a minute left to go so if you want to ask your question quickly we'll uh, see if we can get it answered quickly how are you i'm good thanks for taking my call sure. uh, after um working at a company for the past 18 or so years um we're coming into having our first ever written contract there's a term in there that I couldn't quite um, get the answer to by searching online. And it says that, you know, um, signing this contract, it's going to end your, your you know, uh, current unwritten contract. And um, when you sign this, it'll end, it will be the end of your working notice period, which I'm wondering, does that mean that if I sign this contract, my, um, I won't be getting possibly any severance for the last like total years that I worked or is there anything maybe you can tell me about that? Okay. Well, well, thanks for calling. And, and essentially we don't have much time, but there's two overriding issues here. Okay. One okay. is I, I need more information than what you gave me, unfortunately, because you mentioned this thing called working notice, which leads me to believe that they gave you some notice that they were introducing that contract. Um, mm -hmm. What, what Probably, would matter yeah. is, well, yeah. So what would matter is, how much notice they gave you, whether there was a specific date that they told you was going to come into effect, and whether you actually kind of had the contract at the time. Now, that could impact your severance entitlements, as could language in that contract actually specifically dealing with your severance entitlements. It might say, if we terminate your employment for so-and-so reason, you might only get you know A, B, and C for severance, which would be a heck of a lot less than your full mm -hmm. entitlements, which you would have been you know, entitled to without the contract, because it's always better not to have a contract than a contract. So to leave you off on, give us a call. We'll take a look at it and we'll help you out. Sheila, short and sweet, but I appreciate the call. And I'm going to give you a number now to reach out to Andrew and his team. 1-855-821-5900. Email help at employmentlawyer.ca. And the website that is always there for you, free and anonymous, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca as well. We're back here Wednesday night. Don't go anywhere. On Point is coming right back. Your pal uh, Alex Pearson's on the way. We'll catch you next Wednesday.